0: This time on Profiles, the journalism ethics expert who led the task force which examined NPR's ethics code in the aftermath of the dismissal of commentator Juan Williams. Robert Steele is Distinguished Professor of Journalism Ethics at DePauw University and directs its Prindle Institute for Ethics. I'm your host, Perry Metz. Mr. Steele, you've led scores of ethics reviews around the country— Is it fair to say you're the emergency room doctor called in when a journalism organization
1: injures itself? I think that's a a fair description to say that I'm, I'm called in in those emergency situations. And that's often the case with news organizations where they've had some troubles and they give me a ring and say, come help us out. I've joked over the years that I'm a bit like Red Adair, the late oil well firefighter who was called in when there was a big oil well fire going on. Um, in situations uh, where I'm called in, the first thing I do is try and understand what's going on, I get a good uh, understanding, ascertainment of the situation. I ask lots of questions and then do my best to help them make good decisions to address whatever challenges they have.
0: How often are you called in when there isn't a problem just to uh, address? these ideas.
1: Well, good editors and uh, executive producers and journalists are thinking about ethics all the time. And over the last 25 years, I've had uh, hundreds of calls, probably thousands, literally, of phone calls from good journalists who say, I'm thinking about this particular issue. Might have to do with a conflict of interest, might have to do with an investigative story, might have to do with covering vulnerable people. And they'll say, help us think about this before we get into dicey territory. So what happens a lot where journalists call me and say, help me think through this situation. It also happens uh, fairly often where a news organization does have problems and they ring me up and say, will you come and do some uh, uh, attending to the uh, challenges we face? Let's turn to that very specific incident, which
0: has certainly put you In the news and at the forefront of journalism this year, let me play this audio clip of the original remarks that Juan Williams made in a conversation with Bill O'Reilly on Fox.
2: So where am I going wrong there, Juan?
1: Well, actually, uh, I hate to say this to you because
0: I don't want to get your ego going, but I think you're right. I think, look, political correctness can lead to some kind of paralysis where you don't address reality. I mean, look, Bill, I'm not a bigot, you know, the kind of books I've written about the civil rights movement in this country. But when I get on a plane, I gotta tell you, if I see people who are in Muslim garb and I think, you know, they're identifying themselves first and foremost as Muslims, I get worried. I get nervous. Now, I remember also that when that Times Square bomber was at court, he said the war with Muslims, America's war with is just beginning. First drop of blood. I don't think there's any way to get away from these facts. But I think there are people who want to somehow remind us all, as President Bush did after 9 11, it's not a war against
1: Islam. He, President Bush went well, to a mosque. There isn't any to, theology
0: to involved in this at all, from my perspective, Juan. But you live in the liberal precincts. Yeah, you actually work for NPR. What's wrong with that as an expression of his opinion?
1: let me set the context, if I could, in terms of my role here. That, that's important. Um, NPR journalists, including Ellen Weiss, the former senior VP of news, uh, have called me many times over the years to ask for guidance on ethics issues. And many NPR journalists and senior news executives came to pointer seminars and workshops uh, on ethics and leadership. So it it was not unusual for NPR journalists to ask me to help them think through ethics issues. In this particular case, I did not have a call uh, from NPR, and I was only called in after this particular situation by Vivian Schiller, the now former CEO of NPR, to help them think through ethics standards and practices at NPR. Part of the reason for that was what transpired with the Juan Williams situation and related to that uh, uh, interview cut with O'Reilly that Williams just did that we heard. So it's important to, to put in context my role there. I was not called in specifically because of this particular situation. And my role is not to uh, make a decision to uh, decide right or wrong in terms of what Juan Williams did in that particular circumstance. Personally, I do have some concerns about the way in which he expressed himself and the framing of the way in which he expressed his concern about Muslims. He did later in that interview with Juan Williams say that it was unfair for Bill O'Reilly or anybody else to stereotype a group of individuals, Muslims or others, by virtue of who they are, how they look, how they dress. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he said that several minutes after he had made this original comment. And therefore, I I think it created a very problematic situation of expressing that opinion in that format at that time about a very volatile issue here in our society. So uh, there are some dynamics that were at play there. Uh, Then as we know, the NPR made the decision to terminate Juan Williams' contract and Mr. Williams was not at all happy about that. He's continued to raise concerns about it, raising concerns in his book, Muzzled, and feels that he was treated unfairly by NPR. My role was not to make any kind of decision as to how he was treated or the way in which NPR handled that, but rather to look at NPR's standards and practices for ethics and the way in which NPR journalists and executives go about their decision-making.
0: Well, when you uh, headed that task force to examine uh, the NPR ethics code and, and procedures, your task force recommended that NPR curtail and control appearances by reporters acting as pundits, not allowing long-term contracts for those, those roles. Why can't their knowledgeable analysis, labeled as such, help the public gain a deeper understanding of important news stories?
1: That analysis based on the journalism can be very important, and we talked about this at great length among the 13 members of the task force, and I had recommended to NPR in square one that we create that task force, which included seven uh, employees of NPR, five from within news, two outside of news, uh, as well as four other very good journalists from around the country, and two citizens who are long-time uh, listeners of uh, NPR, uh, and the task force put a great deal of value on analysis that is directly connected to and built upon journalistic knowledge and journalistic skills. But we drew a distinction between that kind of analysis and opinion point of view expressed by individuals including journalists and it's the belief of the task force and was included in our recommendations that npr should draw a very clear distinction there should be journalistic reporting which includes substantive knowledgeable skilled analysis based on the journalism and there can be commentary expressed by individuals who are commentators and who express opinions and point of view. That middle territory of analysis, which was quasi-commentary and quasi-reporting, is the problem area. And our recommendation was that you not have analysts who are also giving point of view. You have journalists who are doing analysis based on the reporting and their knowledge, and you have commentators who are doing opinion. That touches on the role
0: of the late Dan Shore, former CBS newsman who served many years as uh, an NPR analyst. And I asked Vivian Schiller early in, in her term whether we should be comfortable as NPR stations in having only one or two major news analysts, both of whom had pretty liberal perspectives not because that wasn't a valid viewpoint but because we didn't have a prominent name analyst uh, who had a more conservative view. And she rejected that. She she said that uh, uh, she thought that the analyst position was clearly identified on NPR and and that that wasn't a problem. I'm hearing you draw a distinction there.
1: Well, the task force and I, in my opinion, tried to draw that distinction, and I believe that, that Vivian understood where we were coming from and accepted that recommendation. We presented it to the NPR board in February. She then left NPR uh, several weeks after that. But my sense was that the emphasis we placed on that distinction was both uh, appropriate and uh, on the mark, and I think Vivian heard that and, and agreed that there could be and should be that kind of distinction. I agree with you that there should be a range of perspectives within the commentary that NPR or any organization has. A good newspaper and its op-ed page has a range of different perspectives across a broad ideological spectrum. Uh, and NPR, if it does commentary and it does do commentary, should have a range of perspective in terms of multiple ideological perspectives.
0: You phrased both here with me and, and in the things you've written Uh, You phrased your recommendations to NPR uh, about ways to improve its ethics code, to uh, share information with reporters and producers, to encourage training, uh, all very forward-looking. But knowing what had happened, what's your assessment of how seriously this incident damaged NPR's reputation and credibility?
1: Well, there's no doubt that, that NPR took a hit uh, in the public sector because of this particular situation and there have been a couple others. Uh, the reality is all news organizations at one time or another uh, take some brickbats and smacks on the noggin and on the shins. Uh, in this one, it was a fairly high-profile situation. Uh, I I think in the short term, uh, there was a real hit on credibility. There were a number of politicians who picked up on this situation involving Juan Williams and used it as an argument, I think improper at times, for why the financial – underpinnings of public radio should be changed and, in fact, why public funding, uh, government funding of NPR and NPR member stations uh, should be changed and, in fact, uh, argued for eliminated in many cases. I think that was a wrong-handed idea and it was inappropriate in terms of a response. That said, what transpired at NPR last fall and into the winter was a, a serious situation in which NPR executives had to address what it meant to their credibility. I think they were very wise to take a step back and create this task force and ask us to look at NPR's ethics standards to make sure they were clear, make sure they were consistent, make sure they were meaningful. And I I think that we as a task force have done a very good job on this. We have written new guiding principles that while they're not new in a sense of the spirit of capturing accuracy, fairness, completeness, independence, honesty, and the other principles that guide NPR, they are stated more clearly more compellingly. We also recommended a new, more practical handbook of news ethics, which takes the various standards and practices and puts them in a more meaningful, clear way, including guidelines for use of social media, which NPR had written in in recent years, but were a separate document. Uh, This new handbook will include a lot of case studies, a lot of practical advice, and most importantly, it'll raise lots of questions which the journalists and the news executives have to ask themselves at intersections over and over. It puts a lot more responsibility and decision-making role in the hands of managers at NPR, as well as responsibility for the journalists. But I think that's very important when it comes to ethics. Ethics should not be about rule books, because rules imply and lead to rigidity, and that gets in the way of good decision-making. Yes, you need clear guiding principles. You also need strong guidelines, but then you have to make good decisions at the intersection of competing principles every day.
0: Obviously, I recognize uh, many of those phrases from the report that you wrote and that the task force submitted. One of the interesting things I I noticed was that you recommended uh, a more nuanced uh, guidebook, but also, uh, if if you will, an executive summary, uh, some guiding principles that people could – could use as a touchstone, even as they might refer to a more detailed handbook. That's correct.
1: And, and one of the reasons we did that is the experience that I and other journalists have had in lots of news organizations around the country. And, and I've recommended a number of times, and news organizations have put in place this combination of guiding principles and strong guidelines with a clear process for making decisions. In this case, uh, as part of the task force effort, I also went to NPR member stations in St. Louis, Phoenix, and Orlando and held sessions with about 65, 70 citizens in those communities. We asked those citizens to ahead of time read the NPR News Code of Ethics, which has been in existence for a decade or more, uh, and bring us their thoughts, deconstruct it. Where are the strengths? Where are the weaknesses? Where are the, mm. the ways in which uh, this code could be better written and more articulate in, in uh, both its aspiration and its inspiration? And that was very helpful to us to hear the views of these citizens combined with the views of hundreds of employees at NPR with whom I and others in a task force talked. So out of all that, we said, let's put the guiding principles into a much stronger, clearer constitution, if you will, and then build on that the guidelines and the process for decision making. And I think it's headed in a very good direction. Ideally, we'll have this finished by the end of August, presented to the NPR board in September and uh, conduct a series of ongoing workshops uh, throughout NPR for all 800 or so employees this fall. And we also, to the degree that member stations around the country here in Bloomington, Indianapolis and Minneapolis and uh, Portland, Maine and Portland, Oregon Mm. and across the country are interested uh, to also help the member stations uh, take these guiding principles and these guidelines and put them in effect at the local level
0: how different were the comments from ordinary citizens uh, people who who are long-time listeners. How different were those comments from the ones you received from working journalists?
1: I think there was a, a real similarity in terms of the importance of having greater clarity and a more substantive aspirational code. There's a lot of good in the existing NPR News Code of Ethics, but like a lot of codes of ethics, it uh, uh, has been hammered together and then rebuilt at different times with additions to it. And so there were not only some places that new uh, guidelines were needed, but some of the language was just not as clear as it should be. But the one thing that the citizens emphasized over and over was how important NPR journalism is across this country. In an era in which many news organizations, particularly television networks and now many newspapers because of economic reasons, have cut back their reporting in this country and particularly in, in international coverage, NPR remains one of the strongest news organizations in this country and in the world. And so the citizens in St. Louis, Orlando, and Phoenix and others I talked to Mm -hmm. in other places around the country emphasized over and over how important NPR journalism is at the national level and at the local level. And let's get it really sharp. Let's make it even better. That's what I heard over and over. We believe in it, and we want it to be as good as it can be.
0: Before we go any, any further, let me review very quickly some of the basic recommendations from the task force and ask you to, to tell me if I've left anything major out. Uh, the, the task force recommended labeling more clearly news and commentary and broadcasts, training reporters and managers in ethics, clarifying to whom these guidelines apply, including freelancers and uh, programs that NPR may uh, get from other sources – hiring a standards and practices officer who might both model good behavior and serve as a resource for people in the newsroom,
1: and reviewing conflict of interest policies.
0: Have I left anything out?
1: Without looking at those recommendations, I think that pretty well captures. it. I have to think about, there was a lot of emphasis on transparency being very important. We put a lot of emphasis on the uh, ongoing training and development. And, and just to clarify one point, I, at, at one point the word officer was used in relation to standards and practices, but the term that we applied in the end of the recommendation was a standards and practices editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was something I strongly believed in, that, that we should think about ethics in a sense of a collaborative process in which good decisions are made based on principles and guidelines. Officer implies a heavy-handed rule, which is not what we were in any way advocating. Media history buffs recognize
0: that phrase. Standards and practices was the feared department at the uh, television networks uh, in in the 50s who were always deciding what words were uh, allowed to be used on television, what things could be depicted uh, and it was their sense very hard to pin down about what was acceptable to the American public. But your your distinction here of an editor is someone again who would raise questions, discuss nuances of of the decision-making process rather than uh, someone
1: who would issue edicts. Is that right? That, that's quite correct. Uh, there is no direct relationship between standards and practices as we recommended it and that historical piece if you go back to the 50s and 60s of the way it was set up in uh, broadcast organizations. This standards and practice editor concept is much more like what the New York Times has with a standards and practices editor. It's somebody within the news organization who helps interpret the existing standards and practices and guidelines uh, within ethics within the organization, uh, ask tough questions at key moments along the way. And our recommendation, NPR, is that this individual uh, be someone who is not making the decisions when it comes to day-in, day-out coverage or a big investigative story or any other kind of ethics issue. He or she is not making the decisions, but asking the right questions to get people to think harder on a continuing basis and offering guidance and input and insight and advice to the senior executives at news and elsewhere within NPR so that they too can make good final decisions. Before we leave
0: this topic, I wanted to get
1: your thoughts
0: on a particular sentence that was most striking to me buried in most accounts of the task force's work. You made a statement that the most common problem you've found in news organizations you've worked with all across the country – is that reporters don't really know the guidelines of their own organizations, that they're not clear to them. They may not have read the most recent version, and there hasn't been much discussion. What does that say about the ability of the watchdogs to watch themselves?
1: Well, this is true not only in news organizations, but in most organizations uh, across this country and perhaps around the world. Uh, certainly my experience in times when I've worked with other organizations beyond the media, it doesn't say something that is positive, that's for sure. <laughs> the reason one – Uh, an organization has standards and practices and call it a code of ethics or call it something else uh, is to make sure that all the employees of the organization are aware of what the expectations are when it comes to ethical standards and to have everybody on the same page as I've said before, I don't believe that that the ethics standards of practice should be a rigid rule book. I think that gets in the way of good decision making. But it should be clear principles to say this is what we stand for in terms of our ethical obligations and responsibilities in our professional role. In the case of journalism, accuracy, fairness, completeness, honesty, independence, impartiality, accountability, transparency, respect, and excellence, the, the uh, principles that will guide us. And each of those principles is fleshed out with specific guidelines to help uh, the journalists, in this case at NPR, make decisions in terms of investigative reporting, in terms of covering tragedy, in terms of breaking news, in terms of avoiding conflicts of interest. And ideally the employees of a news organization and any organization are aware of those standards, talk about them, and use them as guideposts in the day-to-day work that they conduct. Uh, standards of practices also protect the employees by saying, here are the boundaries, here are the, uh, the guardrails uh, when it comes to independence and avoiding conflict of interest, for instance, to make sure that the journalists don't find themselves in a minefield where they have competing loyalties and a conflict of interest that it would erode the credibility and integrity Integrity, Not only of their own journalism, but of the organization. For our listeners who are interested in reading the NPR guidelines for
0: themselves, along with the social media guidelines, I'll tell you that after our break, I will be giving the web address in case you'd like to get a pencil and paper to take that down. Let's take a break now and listen to your uh, first selection uh, that you brought uh, By a a favorite in these parts, Carrie Newcomer. If you'd tell us why you picked
1: this. Well, she is a uh, Hoosier songwriter and musician, she's terrific. Uh, in terms of the way in which she captures the uh, uh, the quality, the ethos, the culture of Indiana. I grew up in small-town Indiana, so when I first heard this song that uh, that Carrie uh, wrote and, and performs of I Wish I May, I Wish I Might, and she talks about summer uh, in Indiana and uh, other times the year, too, the fall and the spring and the winter in some ways, particularly the summer and the fall, and county fairs and uh, church gatherings and all the special things of Indiana. I knew that this song was about where I grew up and what I consider very special about Indiana.
2: Sweet corn days in Oakland City, the Apple Fest in Napanee. Blueberry Cavalcade, the Sacred Heart, Polish Days, October fest in Rensselaer, Marshmallow Days in Ligonier, the Feast of the Hunter's Moon, the Pork and Pumpkin Rendezvous. everything we love is here.
0: This is Profiles. Today talking with Bob Steele, journalistic ethicist and the head of the recent NPR task force, looking at the NPR ethics code. As promised, for our listeners interested in seeing the current NPR Ethics Code, you can find it online at npr.org slash about
2: slash about NPR slash ethics. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville a locally-owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business Internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. When
0: and how will we know if your work with NPR has been effective?
1: Well, I I, I think there are several standards that we, the public, uh, can judge this by. Uh, I hope that in the day-to-day journalism of NPR on the air and online and any other form of digital delivery that uh, folks use to get NPR journalism. Uh, It will speak of uh, excellence. It will speak in excellence in terms of knowledge of the subjects being covered, excellence in terms of the craft skills that the journalists at NPR bring to the table uh, in terms of storytelling, not just the correspondents and reporters across the country and around the world, but the editors and the producers and the uh, audio technicians and the engineers and all the other support personnel at NPR who help make NPR what it is. This is NPR, Mm. as the term is is appropriately used. So I think one of the important standards is to gauge day in and day out the quality of the journalism. Does it measure up in its accuracy, its fairness, its completeness? I think it's also important for NPR to scrutinize itself in a rigorous and continuous basis in the same way that NPR would scrutinize uh, the government, uh, major companies, uh, churches, and uh, other religious faiths in this this country as part of the coverage. This scrutinizing takes place in a couple of ways. NPR has an ombudsman and has for more than a decade now. The new ombudsman, Edward Schumacher Matos, is a very skilled and smart journalist who has uh, done a great deal of uh, fine writing over the years for newspapers. He's taught journalism. He actually ran a newspaper at one point. He started in June of this year, uh, uh, succeeding Alicia Shepard who was the ombudsman for the previous three years, did a very good job of holding NPR accountable. Schumacher Matos' columns, and you can see these on the NPR site on a regular basis. You can also have them uh, sent to you by email on a regular basis. So both his columns and ongoing blogging uh, shine that bright light of scrutiny. Scrutiny on NPR and at times uh, critically uh, raise questions about certain kind of reporting, and and I hope that through the ombudsman column and through the way listeners and online users of NPR gauge the journalism, we can see how this long process of tightening the standards and practices at NPR plays out. Much of what is happening with the standards and practices and the new principles and guidelines is internal. Uh, It's the hands-on, the machinery day in and day out. It's editors and reporters asking really hard questions of each other and editors prosecuting stories on on the way in which a a reporter uses a single verb or an adverb and saying, is that fair in this particular case? Is is this precise in the way in which it was uh, taking place in this particular story? And, And so that's not easily seen by the public, but it is a terrific responsibility internally for the journalists at NPR, and I would hope that the uh, work of this task force and the work of lots of journalists within NPR in creating these new guidelines uh, is productive in that sense and makes a strong news organization even stronger in excellence and in ethics.
0: That's a very interesting
1: explanation. Uh,
0: That makes me want to ask – your opinion of a somewhat larger issue, the trend over the last 20 years for virtually any prominent journalist to become sought after on the lecture circuit, as a guest on late night television, as a a person of interest on cable talk shows, putting the journalist out of his or her typical role – and making them more of either a commentator or an entertainer. Uh, And the opportunity to speak then goes far beyond –
1: their role as a journalist. It does, and it creates some real challenges for individual journalists and for their news organizations, and we've talked about this a lot in the task force that is uh, reviewing the NPR ethics standards. Uh, I've had lots of conversations with Margaret Lowe-Smith, who is the uh, uh, acting senior VP of news at NPR, who's a terrific journalist and smart as a whip, and others in the NPR uh, senior news management team, and they are moving towards clearer standards for their journalists so that when NPR journalists are in any way offering their expertise, whether it's on other news programs on television or online or in any other media platform, or whether the NPR journalists are speaking to the public at a university gathering or some other sort of uh, public function, that the journalists can offer their analysis based on their journalistic knowledge and their skills. But the journalists should not be venturing into the personal opinion arena unless they are strictly commentators in NPR. If they are the journalists who are doing the reporting, they should not be offering their personal point of view and opinion. To really reach back, uh, that almost sounds uh, like
0: a call for commentators to be restricted to the role that... Eric Severide used to play on CBS News. He was not, during that period, a reporter. He simply was a commentator on the issues of the day, later John Chancellor on NBC. Is that more the kind of acceptable
1: role you see? It's the recommendation of the task force and it's a role that I would champion personally in, in my professional expertise uh, with journalism ethics. Uh, many of us in the public, and I put myself in that role at times as well because I'm a consumer of news and all platforms, find it increasingly challenging to understand the distinction. Of journalists who, at one moment, are covering a story, and the next moment, are serving as pundits. Uh, sometimes they're writing columns for their own newspaper, or doing commentary for their own broadcast organization, or doing it online, in which they are clearly offering point of view right after and right before again, they are covering that same issue in government, in the economy, uh, in religion, in sports, in environmental issues, whatever their specialty is. And I think, A, that's very confusing to the public to try and figure out, okay, when is Bob Steele being a journalist in reporting and when is Mm -hmm. Bob Steele being an opinion offerer in this situation? So that in itself is, is confusing. And I think it's very unfair to those we cover. Why should a congresswoman or a state legislator or the owner of a business or the manager of a baseball team trust a journalist who at one minute is going to be asking questions as a reporter and ideally writing a fair, accurate, independent story and that same journalist then puts on a different hat two hours later and is a pundit in which he or she, the journalist, is raising personal opinion thoughts about that business or that church or that government agency or that lawmaker or mm. that team. Uh, I don't think it can work in the sense of independent, substantive, professional journalism.
0: Now, you've not simply been uh, someone who studied journalism and values, you spent almost a decade as a reporter and producer in Iowa and Maine. You have a master's in radio and TV from Syracuse and a doctorate in journalistic ethics and ethical decision-making from the University of Iowa. What was a time when your own ethics were tested?
1: Well, there have been many times over the years when I was first a reporter, there were a lot of stories in which I Uh, had to work extra hard to make sure that a story was accurate and fair when the details weren't clear. My first uh, professional job after graduate school was in Bangor, Maine, working for uh, an NBC television station small station, and so I and the other three reporters did a lot of things, often in the same day. I would go to the State House in Augusta and cover politics, and that might be environmental stories or it might be stories dealing with the legislative process or covering the governor. Uh, And then I would also do a couple other stories in communities on the way back from Augusta to Bangor. And at times, I would do the uh, the sports on the <laughs> evening newscasts and, and try and uh, do a couple local sports stories on the university or local teams. So there were, there were a lot of challenges, trying to nail down a story, be fair and accurate when you're doing lots of things at the same time. Uh, there was a period in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where I was an assistant news director and executive producer of an ABC television station and which uh, – we were doing some pretty substantive project and in investigative reporting. And I can remember some real knockdown dragouts with uh, our investigative reporter, who was quite good, uh, but he also had some edge about him. And that's partly what made him good. Mm. But there were times in which I had to challenge him in terms of where he was going in a story to make sure that he stayed with inside the guardrails in terms of fairness and accuracy. He did, and he really did some great investigative reporting. But uh, those are some examples of when it would come up in day-to-day uh, journalism.
0: Many of our listeners may recognize uh, the place that you taught for 20 years, the Pointer Institute for Media Studies in St. Petersburg, Florida. Nelson Pointer was an IU grad, a friend of Herman Wells, and university benefactor. He even established a center here for the study of American institutions. How did you connect with the Pointer Institute
1: in Florida? Serendipity in many ways. Uh, I, after uh, starting on my Ph.D. at the University of Iowa, had gone back to the state of Maine where I had been a, uh, uh, a working journalist and gone back to teach at the University of Maine while I was finishing my Ph.D. and. At some point in the mid-1980s, one of my colleagues said, do you know about the Pointer Institute and these seminars that they run for journalism educators? And I said, gee, I don't. And I looked it up and found out that there was one coming up for those who taught journalism ethics. And that was... Becoming my specialty, I was doing my PhD dissertation on journalism ethics and and finished it on that. So I went to the Pointer Institute in a seminar and had a great experience. Uh, some really bright folks from around the country, almost all like myself, had been journalists in the trenches and then gone back to uh, graduate school and were now teaching journalism in one form or another. And I had a great experience, very stimulating. And uh, at the time, Pointer was the Pointer Institute was looking for someone to take over their ethics program. And And lead it and uh, they asked me to do that. Uh, The timing wasn't quite right for Mm -hmm. me for a couple reasons and I loved living in Maine and had no desire to live in Florida so I actually took a pass on the job a couple of times but uh, we reconnected within a couple of years and they asked me to uh, reconsider and take the position and I went there in 1989 and uh, within about four hours of being there I knew it was a phenomenal job that it was the right place for me. gave me the opportunity to keep working with newsrooms across the country and in increasingly around the world uh, with very bright journalists and I think a very stimulating role. It was a -a one-of-a-kind role in American journalism and not only running workshops for journalists at Pointer, but going to newsrooms around the country in which I I did – uh, extensively. The, probably the favorite thing in my, my work at the Pointer Institute, and I still continue it now in my role at DePaul University, is being on call, uh, being what we came to term a rabbi, of being uh, ready with uh, some good questions and ideally some insight to virtually any ethics issue that would emerge in a newsroom here in this country around the world. And so I would regularly and still do get phone calls from editors and producers and reporters and other executives in the news business, including owners who have called me on occasion and say, help me think this through, help me think about this investigative story, or we're dealing with a natural disaster and trying to be as aggressive as we can and as compassionate as we can, or conflicts of interest issues. I I would say over the years that at least a third and maybe even approaching a half of the ethics issues that have been posed to me had competing loyalty elements to them, and in some way, either a real or a perceived conflict of interest. It's always a challenging area. My role has been to help the journalists sort it out, think through the issues, ask hard questions of themselves, and make good decisions.
0: My mother used to say, uh, if you uh, think you might have a conflict of interest, how would you feel about it being on the front page of the paper? How useful is that as shorthand for I, making I think a it's decision? a reasonable.
1: We've used that and others comparable to it. You're driving down the road. You see a billboard. There's your story on the billboard. But uh, I think it's a good way to do it. And one of the reasons it's essential for journalists to do it is in journalism we do and we should shine the light of scrutiny on conflicts of interest in other organizations in our society. We report about competing loyalties and conflicts of interest between lawmakers and lobbyists, between local government officials and develop, and developers. Uh, we report on conflicts of interest between physicians and pharmaceutical companies and on and on. We shine the light of scrutiny when others have conflicts of interest which erode their credibility and can harm the public in one way or another. We indeed should do it very intensely and rigorously on ourselves in journalism.
0: I want to be sure we have a chance to uh, play your second selection, uh, something you brought What is the
1: uh, import of this song? I grew up in the uh, 50s and 60s, uh, uh, at least tried to grow up. We never know whether we truly grow up. And this song, Where Have All the Flowers Gone, spoke to the uh, the times of the 50s and particularly the 60s and the early 70s. I-, I happened to go in the Army when I graduated from DePaul in 1969 and was an Army officer and went to Vietnam. So this song, in many ways, reflected the tensions of that era of how we were dealing with the war that so many of us in this country were struggling to figure out whether it was right and how to get out of it when we decided it was wrong.
2: Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing. Where have all the flowers gone?
0: We're back on Profiles talking today with Bob Steele, who is the head of the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePauw University and also a distinguished professor there. Mr. Steele, you returned after 20 years uh, teaching at Pointer. you returned to DePauw where you earned your bachelor's degree, and you teach seminars there now on leadership and on journalism ethics. But it's your first year class that fascinates me, a class on values, beliefs, and storytelling. How would you describe it?
1: I've always enjoyed. Uh, struggling with ethics issues and values issues. I can remember growing up in small-town Indiana and in my uh, classrooms and at home, I would constantly be asking the question, why? Uh, In fact, I used to doodle the word why in lots of different fonts and scripts. And and to this day, it intrigues me of not only why we believe as we do, but why we make decisions as we do. When DePaul asked me to come back and, and teach several years ago and then eventually become the director of the Ethics Institute, I wanted to be as close as I could to the students of this era in terms of helping them think through these issues of values and ethics. I had that opportunity back in the 60s at DePaul as a student there when we had professors who really pushed us to think about civil rights and the Vietnam War, the women's movement, the environmental movement. And so I borrowed the This I Believe concept uh, from the series of essays that have been airing on public radio for the last four or five Mm years and used the title and the framework to create a first-year seminar. This, I believe, storytelling about our core values in which the students uh, listen to read and listen to some of these essays that have been uh, aired on uh, public radio and published in several books now to help the students think about values through the lens of lots of others. And then I ask the students to think about places in their lives and people in their lives and to explore what's important to them and what their values are. Students write a great deal in this class. We are very discussion-oriented and probing. We explore the contentious issues of society, but always through the lens of the individual and the person.
0: If I could read uh, one paragraph from the course description you wrote, it made an impact on me. This is aimed, obviously, at an incoming freshman at DePaul. As you make the transition from hometown and high school to Greencastle and DePauw, Your stories about values reflect your path and your passions. Your stories may speak of loyalty, tested when a friendship endured a breach of faith, of lessons learned when a seemingly sure victory turned into a painful defeat, of confidence gained in mastering a musical instrument or leading a dysfunctional group, of courage displayed by the quiet person who spoke up in challenge against a racist joke when the big talkers were silent. It struck me not only that that would be a fascinating class to take as a freshman, but that it would have uh, new and different meanings if we took it again as each decade
1: passed in our lives. Well, that's uh, well-framed in terms of how we could look at this experience of when we would explore it at 18 or at – uh, Seventy-eight. Uh, I, I wrote that that passage in the uh, spirit of how I think about these issues in life. I'm turning sixty-four this month. And for me, if I think back on my time at DePauw, I wish I had had a class like that as a freshman that had prompted me to and maybe even required me to think about and write about the issues of values in an even more intense way than I did. And I wish that I had maybe done more of that in my time in Vietnam. And I wished I had done more of it in my time in newsrooms as a reporter and a news manager. And I wished I'd done more of it in my years raising three daughters. All of those things are part of my life, and I've probably done it in my head and my heart. But my opportunity now, and I consider it a phenomenally wonderful opportunity is to work with these students who are at 18 or 19 years of age, are very interested in writing about these issues. And they write about the joy in their lives, the, the happiness that comes from a very special relationship with a grandparent. They write about the satisfaction that comes from achieving something wonderful in, in music or in sports or in academics. They also write about the pain in their lives. They write about uh, a divorce. In their families and they write about chemical dependency of parents and they write about the suicide of best friends. Uh, and what that means to their values. And I think that's important that they can express themselves ideally in a safe place. I also use this format in a more limited way for DePauw graduates who are coming back for their 50th reunion. Ah. So we actually do that. I've done it several times now with with folks who are in their early 70s uh, who are coming back to DePauw, and I ask them to write these essays about something they believe in deeply. And they obviously bring that 50 years of experience to their exploration of what their core values are. I'd love to hear those two groups read their essays
0: to each other. Yeah. That sounds fascinating. You shared an essay with me uh, called The Purpose and Power of Questions. In it you quote extensively from a commencement address given by your DePaul classmate Jack McQuethy. This is a quote from that speech. All institutions, all endeavors, all relationships are improved by a good scrubbing using the word why. In democracy, it is the question we must all constantly be asking our government and our leaders. It is not unpatriotic to question the government. It is unpatriotic not to. Isn't that the premise that has bedeviled journalism for decades, whether it is loyal to ask hard questions?
1: It is a challenge, and it has been a challenge uh, for all journalists, uh, across the world, particularly those within uh, democratic uh, societies. Jack McQuethy was a, a brilliant journalist. I, I grew up, if you will, in my college years with Jack at DePauw. We drank a few beers together and we worked together at the the, the, DePaul, the student newspaper. He was the editor and I was the sports uh, editor and we were uh, good friends. He went on to a, a terrific career, career, U.S. News and World Report where he covered environment in the White House and then uh, ABC News for uh, more than a quarter century where He uh, uh, covered the important issues of the world, including uh, um, the Pentagon for many years and 24 wars. And he did ask those hard questions over and over to powerful people. He was as sincere as anybody I've ever known in that belief that journalism should hold accountable the powerful and particularly those who run our government. And that was, as Jack believed, by asking the word why over and over, a true mark of patriotism. And I think it indeed reflects that. I think that we should challenge our institutions and we should challenge those who lead our government and and other uh, organizations in our country to make them justify in a proper, respectful way what they do and why they do it. So journalism should constantly ask the question, why? And of course, Jack's point, and one that I agree with 100%, was we all should ask that question of ourselves, day in and day out. Not just, what should I do, but why should I do what I do?
0: You're getting at the hallmark of a liberal education for which DePaul is so well known. The idea of Self-examination, not just in college but throughout one's life and uh, vocations and avocations. I wonder painting uh, that across a broader streak of society, business, government, education, religion, just how welcome those questions are and how often they're seen as obstacles or a lack of cooperation – by the participant. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that can certainly happen. A lot of people feel when you put the question up that uh, uh, that you are questioning a person's uh, beliefs, that you're questioning their, uh, their ethos and their ethics. I don't think it has to be that way. Uh, there's a piece of that where you want them to justify what they believe, why they believe as they do, what they stand for. But for the most part, the questions, I believe, should challenge us to think harder, think deeper, have aha moments and at times recognize that maybe our thinking is not as clear as it is, uh, as we think it is, Uh, that times that uh, we don't have enough knowledge, at times we haven't been listening to enough diverse voices and counter uh, opinions and that we uh, need to be more counterintuitive. Uh, I think the best learning takes place when at the table or in the room we have people who are very different, different in their upbringing, different in their life experiences, different in their ideology, different in their religion, different in all the ways that can be important in life from gender to race to age to work, and then we learn more. If we surround ourselves with people who are like ourselves, I believe that's uh, about as counterproductive a daily life as we could live. We need to be with people who are different and constantly ask those hard questions.
0: Believing that, how would you advise a strong leader of any of those organizations to balance the need to move ahead decisively – with the need to reflect?
1: They are woven together inextricably. Uh, you need to move forward as a leader with passion and purpose. At the same time, a leader should be constantly reflecting, uh, listening closely, observing deeply and what's going on within an organization. Uh, I've had this opportunity, as you asked me about at the beginning of this interview, uh, with NPR the past eight months to uh, spend a lot of time with the leaders there and the journalists at NPR and the other uh, 300 employees who work in support and operational roles. And my hope for and my urging to the leaders at NPR is that they are very reflective. They think about the culture of, of what takes place at NPR, where the strengths are, where there might be weaknesses in the underbelly of an organization, whether they have enough diversity in all the ways diversity is important, including thought and including ideology, uh, to be asking hard questions of themselves in that reflective process, and at the same time to chart a course to move ahead in the specific area I've worked with them in terms of clear more compelling, more well-articulated, inspirational and aspirational principles and guidelines, but also move ahead in terms of the day-to-day practice of high-quality, excellent journalism, which NPR is known for, and to become even better at it. So I think you have to be both reflective and very assertive in the way in which you lead an organization. You've been listening
0: to Profiles, a conversation with today's guest, journalism ethicist Bob Steele, Distinguished Professor of Journalism Ethics at DePauw University.
2: For Profiles, I'm Perry Metz. The program you just heard was recorded in July of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business Internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.